we get up on the high ground and nobody else was on it. And they kept saying, uh, Chuck, I don't think you want to be up there, do you? Yeah. But okay, that's they want this high ground for themselves, you know, that they out water tonight. And so we just went ahead and made our little tent and got in and that night shit hit the fan. And bullets were going everywhere. <laughs> Here we are up on the high ground, stuck to the ground. We crawled out, got down, and finally funny things kind of quit and slowed down. And everybody was just laughing their ass off at us, you know. Told you dumb shits not to get up there. There says, oh, maybe we ought to listen to them guys next time. <laughs> Heroes Behind Headlines with Ralph Pizzullo. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our guest today is legendary sniper Chuck Mahoney, the deadliest sniper in Marine Corps history. Growing up a rambunctious kid, in the backwoods of Oregon. Chuck followed in his father's footsteps and joined the Marine Corps in 1967 at the age of 18. Following boot camp at Fort Pendleton with Delta Company, he graduated at the top of his sniper class and deployed to Da Nang at the height of the Vietnam War. During 16 months of active duty, Chuck had 103 confirmed enemy kills and 216 probable kills, which remains a Marine Corps record and second all-time in military history. All his life, Chuck has shunned fame and attention. He calls himself a simple person who is just doing his job. But with the recent book Sniper by author Jim Lindsay, his extraordinary story has finally been told. Today, Chuck joins us to talk about his adventures growing up in Oregon, his combat in Vietnam, and his life since. It's my great honor to welcome Chuck Mahoney as today's Hero Behind the Headlines. Hey, Chuck, great to meet you. I really enjoyed your book. What a fantastic story. Let's just jump in. Can you talk to us a little bit about your childhood, like where you grew up? And then you were you were very close to your grandfather. Can you, can you talk about him? Yeah, when New Pine Creek was right on the California-Oregon border. That was where my parents and my grandfather lived mm -hmm. when I was real little. Well, they both worked in Lakeview, and so they're 15 miles away. So I was with grandfather every day. Can you tell the story about the uh, the shotgun and the quail? And uh, I think you were four years old. <laughs> yeah. Well, Grandpa always had a double barrel twelve gauge shotgun out in the in the barn, and I know he had shot a quail or two with that shotgun. And so one day I went out to the barn, and the quail were all out there running around. I was pretty little. But anyhow, I went over and I got that shotgun. Never shot it before. And there's a big knot hole in the barn. And I stuck the barrel of the shotgun through the knot hole. And I pulled both triggers back. <laughs> and then I pulled the trigger. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we were on the way to the hospital in uh, Lakeview. <laughs> you said in the book you were four years old when that happened. Yeah, about four or five. <laughs> and my poor grandpa, of course, he got his rear end chewed by my folks for allowing something like that to happen. <laughs> I can imagine. It's the last thing he thought would happen. <laughs> yeah. And your dad worked in a sawmill? Yes. When Chuck was five years old, he decided he wanted a Lone Ranger pistol he saw in the Montgomery Ward catalog. Money was scarce in his family, so when he asked his mom if he could have it, she told him he had to work for it. Problem was that Chuck was too young to get a job. Going into town one day with his grandpa, he saw that there was a fortune in coins under the boardwalk that ran along the shops. While his grandpa sat around the wood stove in the town bar drinking and telling stories with his friends, Chuck found a knothole in the boardwalk, and seeing all the fallen coins that had collected underneath, he tried to retrieve them. When that didn't work because his arms were too short, he stuck some newly chewed double bubble gum to the end of a switch and started pulling up dimes and nickels. It was slow work, but by the time Chuck was six, he had the Lone Ranger pistol. My my folks, like I say, they, they worked in uh, Lakeview, which was 15 miles away. So every day until I was, what, like five, I was with my grandfather. Mm-hmm. And we'd do chores and stuff in the morning. And then when all the chores were done, he'd say, come on, Chucky, and we'd hit downtown. And there's, of course, a little bar downtown, and he'd go in and have a few beers with his with his friends. And of course, I would be outside digging through the the slats in the walkway and picking up people's change they dropped when they walked out across the street to the to the store where I could get my bubble gum and all the good stuff I needed. And then at a certain point, your parents uh, moved into Lakeview. Is that correct? Yes. Your grandpa st- stays on the farm. Yeah, grandpa. He passed right after he's moving in. Yeah. I mean, we were actually still moving when Grandpa passed. Uh-huh. And you were invited to the funeral, but you didn't realize that, that he had passed. Yeah. I was little. I didn't understand nothing like that. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I, I, I wanted him to wake up. I didn't know why he was just laying there. Yeah. Didn't understand it, you know. Yeah. Me and Grandpa was pretty tight. And when he just laid there and he wouldn't talk to me, he wouldn't do anything, I, I didn't understand what was wrong. Yeah, that must have been a pretty big shock. Yeah, it was. For a young guy. Yeah. Sure yeah. was. Wow. When I did finally realize that he's gone, I'm never going to see him again. I was pretty tore up for a couple of weeks. Cause I can imagine. It was like, you know, my best friend. Yeah. And then another kid moves into the neighborhood, right, Dennis? Yeah. That was when we moved to Lakeview. Okay. And then he was across the street from me. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about Dennis? Oh, yeah. We we met. We became, I mean, the best friends all through school, you know, all the way. Mm-hmm. When one of us got in trouble, the other one was with him. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, we did like beer, which uh, it cost us uh, <laughs> a few times in trouble. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Dennis had a BB gun, correct? So you, oh, yeah. you both had BB guns. Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, everybody enjoyed that kind of stuff. 
that age to be begun. Yeah. Sure. 14, you got a job at the local Ford dealership. Right. Mm-hmm. And what I did, I'd go up and, and I'd wash the cars, you know, out, out front and stuff. And mm-hmm. Do that every day. That the days I, I had, I worked Saturdays and sometimes an hour or so after school. Mm-hmm. And then uh, finally got on more or less full time with them. Mm-hmm. All I did, you know, to start with is just out, wash the cars out on the lot. And pretty soon I moved into the to the shop mm-hmm. and then we would steam clean engines and do things like that and just use cars that come in. We detail them out. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of my job. Mm-hmm. Eventually I kind of moved up to not really a mechanic, but, you know, doing service jobs on rigs, changing oil. And, mm-hmm. and you also were interested in flying. Oh, yeah. My dad. And three other men bought a, a Taylor Craft uh-huh. uh, airplane, and so I flew it with with my dad for I don't know probably eight ten hours I'm not sure, and I finally got to where I could solo with it. So Dennis's mom would haul us out to the airport. Dennis would get out on the road at the end of the way down at the end of the runway, and then she'd drive me in. I'd get the plane. I'd I'd get all fired up and stuff, and then I'd taxi fare down the end of the runway, pick up Dennis because I wasn't allowed to have a passenger because I, I didn't have a license. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'd jump in and we'd take off and we'd go flying. <laughs> and then we decided, hey, we're going up because we like to shoot rabbits and stuff. So we decided that we would uh, take a door off and take a 22 and go up and shoot rabbits. <laughs> well, that's all fine. Except when you're going real slow, real low, you can real easily hit the ground. Yeah, yeah. Came real close a couple of times. <laughs> so one time Dennis was shooting, and he had a, a semi-automatic 22. He was just shooting at this rabbit while the strut on the wing, where it came up, just as he shot, he shot right through the strut. Okay. <laughs> and that really made me nervous. I thought, okay, oh, you know, it might go down or whatever. But yeah. It didn't. We got it back, and so I ended up taking two of the little round band-aids and put over the hole and painted white. And <laughs> I didn't tell anybody anything about it. Yeah, yeah. You did some uh, some stock car racing when, when you got older? Yeah, I got I got into it a little bit through the Ford garage, partly Ford garage. Mm-hmm. The mechanics were kind of helped me rig up a car. And mm-hmm. I'd go down to Altura few tracks that were close to home and race around a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Had a lot of fun doing that. Mm-hmm. It sounds like fun. And then at 18, you joined the Marines. Yes. And my dad was a Marine. He told me when I was getting drafted, right, you know, so I went up. He told me, whatever you do, you do not go in the Marine Corps. So anyhow, I went up to the center, you know, where you go in and get signed up. And it was Army, Navy, Marines, everybody was there. And I was going to go into the Navy, what my dad wanted me to do. I was going to go in the Navy, and then I, I stood there, and pretty soon this, this Marine recruiter that was sitting there, he says, are you going into the Marine Corps? I said, and there were several of us standing there. None of us was. I said, I always talk about going in the Navy. And he says, then get over there, get out of here, and leave there's men standing here. 
you want to go in the Navy, you get over there with the girls. <laughs> and I, uh, I thought about it. Thought, Hell, I'm going to the Marine Corps. So yeah. that got me into the Marine Corps. Wow. And you wanted to be a flyer. Is that correct? A pilot? I was hoping to be, but it didn't happen. Yeah. When you go to boot camp, they discover you're a great shot. On the sixth week of training, we go up to Edson Rifle Range, and uh, that's where we finally get to start shooting. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up scoring the highest of the, I don't even remember the score, what I scored, but I ended up scoring the highest of of the shooters that were out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, that kind of led me into the sniper program. You know, we got to talking about that. Mm -hmm. And they had an opening, so I applied and got it. And it was natural for you. You've been shooting BB guns and 22s and everything all your life. Right. Yeah. And I love shooting. Uh Uh-huh. And then you're put into the new new scout sniper program. Right. And you're given a Remington 700. Right. This was kind of a special rifle. It was a heavier barrel, reload, uh, 3.9 Redfield scope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, 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 they were nice rifles. Mm-hmm. And you took to that right away? Yes. Chuck arrived in Vietnam in May 1968 during phase two of the Tet Offensive. It turned out to be the deadliest month in the Vietnam War with 2,169 U.S. soldiers killed and major Viet Cong offensives threatening Saigon, Way, Da Nang, and other cities. Stepping from a C-130 and being hit with a blast of tropical heat, Chuck followed his fellow members of Lima 3-5 into a helicopter that flew them north to 5th Marine headquarters in Fubai. His squad leader there was a big Samoan named Fufu Tuitel, who told him not to eat the little green pineapples that grew wild around the base. Loving fruit the way he did, Chuck ate them anyway. Soon his stomach started cramping and he thought he was going to die. Fufu patted Chuck on the back and said, You ain't gonna die, but you'll wish you had before this is over. It was his welcome. To Vietnam. It was kind of scary. <laughs> you know? I bet. I'm sure. The fun part was, boy, I get a rifle and I get a shoot, you know, all I want. And uh, not thinking a whole bunch about them shooting at me all the time either. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it takes a little bit of the fun out of it. Yeah. Yeah. You hadn't had that part of it before, right? No. no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I got good at it. Uh-huh. And when you when you uh, get to Da Nang, you meet a, a Fijian. Fofo Tutelli. Yeah. Uh-huh. He, he sounds like he, he's a guy who kind of took under his wing and taught you a lot. You're right, he did. Yeah. And uh, that was before I got into the sniper platoon. But when I got to Vietnam, he was the one that really took to me and, and, he, and he showed me all kinds of ways of the Vietnamese, what they were doing what mm-hmm. to watch for, I mean, everything. Mm-hmm. And the guy was really good with working with me. He'd been there. He was on the extension, so he'd already been there. I know over 13 months. So he'd helped me a lot with, with uh, knowing how to set up for a hide, how to how to do things, and never never go back the way you got there. You know, things like that, that mm-hmm. little things you don't think about, you know? Yeah. No. 
Yeah, he was he was a big helper. And he taught you about the jungle, how to uh, listen and and what to look for, and so on and so forth. Yeah, he did, and and it comes natural because there's a reason for every sound. Yeah, you know, and and so you're you're in the field, and all of a sudden it is dead silent. You don't hear birds, you don't hear anything. Well, all of a sudden something's going to happen. Yeah, there's a reason for that. Right. And, he, and he taught me that, and he taught yeah. me the things that that were really important to not walk into something that's going to get you killed. Yeah. So then you go to Fubai. Mm-hmm. Now, Fubai was a special base closer to the Thai border, correct? Yeah. What it was is just a little uh, combat base, mainly for artillery, mm-hmm. and uh, it did have a tower on it. And what they would do is they set up, and any time a, a company was getting, you know, hit hard mm-hmm. they would be the support for them you know the artillery okay they had a, a tower up there and i once i learned to to be able to judge distance downhill and bullet where it hit uh, a lot of times we would get them coming in at night and you know trying to get through the constantina wire and stuff to get into the program yeah well from the tower i had a pretty good deal going there because they send up illumination. They were lit up down there, and I just sit in tower and shoot them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And this would happen on a like a nightly basis, or or not nightly, just yeah, you know, occasionally. Uh huh. You get into the uh, the scout uh, sniper platoon, and you're teamed up with the spotter, a, a guy named Albury. Yeah, actually, Albury was a sniper. He was a sniper as well, and they sent me out work with him mm-hmm. and then usually your four or five months training before you end up getting the rifle well albury was actually getting close to going home and uh so i did a lot of shooting with him mm-hmm. and uh when we went in he told uh, the squad leader and and the co he said you know chuck is, is a natural and he said if there's any way you can get him in to take my place, I think he'll do you a super good job. And actually, he talked him into putting me into the uh, scout sniper platoon. Mm-hmm. And that's where it all started out. Mm-hmm. And how does a spotter work with the shooter? To start with, he helps carry different things, ammo and extra ammo, things like that. But mm-hmm. your spotter is... He's got a fully automatic rifle. He's he's back and he's your support, mm-hmm. more or less, mm-hmm. while you're out. And uh, it all depends. A lot of snipers never ever left the company. You know what I mean? They stayed in the company. Well, I worked in in two areas, and uh, one of them was uh, the Arizona territory, which is a main infiltration route, and then the other one was uh, Ganoy Island, and that was another place where they would come in across the river, mm-hmm. Cambodia. They would cross the river and come in. And so I think I talked about it once in the book about the night that they tried to cross the river and I caught them. Oh, that was Valentine's Day, right? Yeah. 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 Our Valentine's Day mask. Like, oh, damn. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was kind of fun. Oh, yeah. Uh, I talked talk to my spotter and. I told him what I wanted to do. I said, we go down the river. I said, you keep the 
M14. I've it ready just in case. And I said, I think they're going to cross because I see them been moving over there and they've come down to the river. Well, then while I was still above, it was almost dark. One of them came out and he actually crossed the river. Was standing there right not 10 feet from me. Wow. Water dripping off of him. It was dark and I was take down as tight as I could get to this where the water had made kind of an eddy in the bank. Anyhow, he finally turned around and laughed. It was kind of a relief. And I told my father, I said, you know, this might get really interesting here. So we got in a good position and everything. And there they come, uh, five to eight feet apart. Wow. Walked across the river. And the river is probably 50 foot wide. Mm-hmm. There were their crossing. So I waited till the first guy started up the bank. And, and how far away are you at this point? Oh, from the first guy, probably 20 feet. Wow. So close. Then I had the M14 with the, with the starlight scope on it. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, when they started crossing, first they ducked down, they got their rifles above their, their head, you know, keep it out of the water and they were ducked down. And I just popping heads all the way across the river. And it just 16 of them floated down. Those were not confirmed kills or, you know, non-confirmed. Yeah. But the next day, the patrol that went down said they found two of them that was hung up into the willows. Mm-hmm. Just he's down from where I'd shot. But like I say, those weren't confirmed kills. They were just mm-hmm. problems. Anyhow, uh, they seem to be more careful about crossing the river after that. Yeah. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I would think so. Yeah, if, if they got into the company, we'd you know where they were set up, there'd have been a hell of a mess. So yeah, they kind of changed their mind and decided not to cross. A few days later, Chuck and Albury were called on to assist Alpha One Five on a search and destroy mission. They were in the middle of a column, passing through an area of bush close to a village, when AK-47s opened fire. Running through a barrage of bullets, Chuck and Albury ducked behind a six-foot-wide pagoda. Just then, Chuck saw a North Vietnamese soldier dart from a big hut on the side of the village and dive into a bunker. Chuck had the better line of vision, so the two men changed rifles. The Remington M14 sniper rifle felt natural in Chuck's hands. He rested the barrel on the pagoda and leveled the reticle on the man's face. Between heartbeats, he pulled the trigger. It was Chuck's first confirmed kill, and he turned out to be an NVA officer. Chuck's only regret was that he let Albury keep the officer's pistol with a red star engraved in the grip. So let's talk about your first uh, confirmed kill, which is in Arizona territory. You were out on patrol. Your your point man was shot. Yeah, he was pinned down. And what was Arizona? Arizona was a particular uh, a quadrant? Yeah, it's, it's just a big area to where it would be Cambodia, Laos, border one of them would come right into it. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a big valley mm-hmm. that just was open you know what i mean there wasn't yeah marines didn't control it the 
NBA or nobody. It's just people lived out there and they would come into it. We would go in and fight. And that's just how it was all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Can you talk about that when they tried to come infiltrate in and you had your first confirmed kill? I think it was an officer, right? And you don't know, you know, when, when they're in the, like that, you don't know if they're officers or what they are. Y'all, you know, is there's an enemy, you know, so. Right. That you get to the body. Yeah. You don't understand for sure what they were. And I think Albury in the book, it says he got his pistol. Yeah. He took the officer's pistol, right? He says, oh, you'll, you'll get, you'll get uh, pistols, you know, all the time. He said, I'm getting ready to go home and I can take this one home because it's not an automatic. Yeah. He said, uh, you'll get a lot more. I said, okay. So I give it to him because that guy, that gook had the pistol. <laughs> Anyhow, I never seen another. <laughs> it was, you know, a revolver. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. What I did is I like to watch an area where, where the uh, NBA and the, the Viet Cong see what areas that they, they would go through mm-hmm. and find trails that they would use. And then I would go set up at night and sit up there and just stay all night and just wait. And a lot of times, here they'd come. Mm-hmm. That was more with my, we'd have the M14. I'd leave my sniper rifle back in with uh, uh, Smitty. He was, anyhow, he was a company radio man. Mm-hmm. Take his uh, M60. And then I'd have the M14. As the new sniper team leader for Delta 1-5, Chuck wanted to gain the confidence of the CO and the grunts. The first thing that new CO said after Chuck introduced himself was, we got sappers harassing us at night. They've been crawling close and leaving homemade bombs at the perimeter. So far, none have gotten in, but nobody's sleeping too well. Chuck and his spotter Wayne went out that night and set up at a small opening in the thick vegetation, about 50 yards out from the perimeter. It was a cloudless night, and they took turns looking through the starlight scope. After midnight, Chuck was monitoring the scope when the jungle sounds of frogs, lizards, and mosquitoes suddenly ceased. Within minutes, a green face appeared close to the ground next to a bush. Chuck slipped off to safety and squeezed the trigger, and the sapper's face disappeared. Minutes later, another face showed, and Chuck fired again. When they checked the bodies in the morning, they found them both clad in black pajamas and sprawled on top of one another. One man clutched an AK-47, and the second gripped a satchel of explosives. Chuck and Wayne gained the respect of Delta 1-5, as a result, I had set up on the main trail. I figured they'd walk on if they did, and that's what they did. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they got real scary. <laughs> mm-hmm. You had to run, right? I mean, they, they were coming at you. They were behind you. They were between me and my company, is yeah. what it was. Okay. I didn't know, so there's no way I could get in a battle with them. Yeah. So I just took off and Went all the way around, uh huh, back to the company. But yeah, scared that shit out of me. I bet. How, how many of them were there? Lots of them, right? Yeah, probably 
25. There was a night where Wayne was your spotter. You guys set up at night. You set up and uh, something started crawling over you. Here and shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's a snake, a long snake. <laughs> I, I think it was one of them hooded cobras. But when it started, I first went to move and then I realized it was a snake. Mm-hmm. And it took that thing forever to go across my legs. <laughs> Jeez. Man. And did you see it? Or, or it was so dark you couldn't even see it? I could tell what it was. I could see enough to know it was a big thing. Yeah. And I knew enough not to move. <laughs> right. But then it, of course, it had to stop for a minute. You know, it was about halfway across. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, didn't know what it was going to do then. Finally, it started again. Yeah. What a really left. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But, you know, at night, anything can happen out there. Yeah. And what happened after that? I think I caught some coming in on the trail. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, shot him. <laughs> uh-huh. So this is when suddenly shooting broke out on the other side of the village. Mm-hmm. And you figured your column was in a firefight with the VC. Right. That's when they started, your own guys started shooting at you. It's kind of scary. I guess so. Yeah. And, and what do you do in a circumstance like that? I finally got the word out. It was me. Yeah. Just took off. A yeah. lot of hollering. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of scary because you don't want the NBA to know where you're at either. You know? Right. Of course. Of course. But you don't want your own people killing you. Right. Right. <laughs> you don't want to kill your own people. And then you go to uh, Goho Island with Hotel 25. You meet a guy named Sugar Bear. Yeah, he's a great guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, big black guy. Mm-hmm. He was probably, I think he weighed 240 pounds. Wow. And uh, nothing but muscle. Yeah. And I found out later that before he got drafted into the Marine Corps, he, he was hooked up with a pro football team. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, that ended when he got uh, went in the service. But anyhow, Sugar Bear, he, he is probably one of my best friends and one of the funnest guys I ever worked with. We had that. Uh, we got in some pretty good experiences, me and Sugar Bear. Mm-hmm. One night, we kind of got overrun. The company did. Sugar Bear is there with me. And we didn't realize when we'd set up that we, we we got high it was a, a tomb but it was round and it was probably 12 foot diameter mm-hmm. but it was rain gonna rain that night and we get up on the high ground and nobody else was on it and they kept saying uh chuck i don't think you want to be up there do you yeah but okay that's they want this high ground for themselves you know the day out water tonight and so we just went ahead and popped up our bunch of liners and made our little tent and got in and that night shit hit the fan and bullets were going everywhere <laughs> it, it, here we are up on the high ground <laughs> so person come on and we started out of the tent and uh anyhow bullets like i say they were going through they were going everywhere stuck to the ground we crawled out got down and finally funny things kind of quit slowed down and everybody was just laughing their ass off at us, you know. Told you dumb shits not to get up there. <laughs> says, 
Oh, maybe we ought to listen to them guys next time. Yeah, you're attacked by a pig? Yeah. Oh, that was a different time. That was a different time. Okay. He lived full with me. Uh-huh. Well, you talk about scary because he came in on my back, and I didn't know what it was. I thought it was NBA or something. Just yeah. screaming and kicking the shit out of me. He was big. <laughs> but he ate good. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, talk about that. So you ended up uh, uh, killing a pig, right? I do. Yeah. <laughs> he killed me. Was in the hole together, and he was just a kick from both feet. And, uh, I pulled my forty-five out and shot him. And Popo uh, actually cut him in the ground. Mm-hmm. That worked out pretty good. Wow! But the helicopter, when you tried to get him on the helicopter, is it is this the same one? Where, no, that's a different thing. Oh. They wouldn't let me take my pig on the helicopter. That's right. Let's talk about that one. Yeah. Well, I was taking my pig. I didn't give a shit. They were, they were <laughs> me on, but I had my pig, and I was getting on there. Yeah. So, yeah. They weren't going to let you on? No, no. Yeah. Not not with my pig. Make a mess, you know? Yeah, make a mess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he yeah. didn't want that on, shit on his... And they were going to take off without you, right? Yeah, they didn't leave me if I didn't get rid of that pig. Jeez. But you got the pig on. You were determined. I did. I finally got him. And then you ended up meeting the helicopter pilot years later at a reunion. Later, yeah. After, yeah, it was at the, one of the shot shows down in Vegas. Okay. Yeah. In fact, he even brought some other people over and said, here's that crazy son of a bitch I was telling you about with the pig. Yeah. <laughs> Chuck and his new spotter, Bill, were with Hotel 25 set up on Gohai Island, near a small village in a dangerous area, when heavy AK-47 fire rang out. It was nighttime. Artillery whistled overhead. Enemy small arms fire crackled all around him. Chuck crouched in a foxhole, clutching his 45, straining his eyes for any movement, when an enemy soldier jumped in the foxhole behind him and kicked him in the back. Momentarily stunned, Chuck twisted around and unloaded his 45 pistol. The enemy screamed and kept thrashing, so Chuck reloaded and was ready to blast him again when an illuminated round exploded overhead. What he saw in the light wasn't an enemy soldier, but a shot-up, pot-bellied Vietnamese pig lying on its back, getting in its last kicks. Let's talk about when you were at Dodge City at Mead River and you were ambushed there. You thought you had been shot. That was when they shot my pack full of shit and the hills I had in there. Peaches, right? Peaches. And peaches. Giant peaches. <laughs> and, and it hit so close to my back when the bullet went through, it just stung like hell and I thought I'd been hit. Yeah. Of course, it went through my peaches, I had a bunch of cans of peaches. And as I laid there, I could feel the blood running down the, my sides. I even told my spotter behind me, I says, I've been hit, I've been hit. <laughs> Anyhow, it was it was just the peach juice running down me. <laughs> <God, I've been laughs> <hit. laughs> 
those peaches probably saved your life that time. A little scary for a little bit. Yeah, I bet I bet so. Yeah. So then you go to Bangkok for some R and R. Yeah. And you left your gun with the armorer. Yeah, I'd like to kill that son of a bitch. <laughs> I told him, I says, there's nothing wrong with my gun. Yeah. Please screw with my gun. Yeah. He says, well, I'll just look it over. I said, it doesn't need anything done to it. And, you know, because it takes a while to get a place you can, you know, get your thousand meter dope and stuff back on your gun. So anyhow, got back from R&R, picked up my rifle, got out to the field. And the company I got with just about probably three, four hundred yards from it. There was another company as it got into a firefight down there. And they have the uh, NVA and ship was putting it to them. Well, I went out and I knew I better shoot my rifle at something to make sure, you know, it's it's on. Yeah. Well, as there, here come this seemed to be civilian clothing. Big guy come walking down here, about 100 yards from me on a trail going in front of me. And when he got almost to me, he stepped up on a dike. And when he did, I see he had a rifle and it was on a like a, a string or a rope, you know, down by his feet. Yeah. Stepped up on the bank. I seen the rifle come up with him. Shit, I just took the rifle off safety. He's only like 100 yards from me. Yeah. Right between the eyes. Touched the rifle off. He turned and looked at me. What the hell? And I cranked another round in, so I went for a body shot. Yeah. Shot again. He just stood there looking at me. And then I shot again. Nothing. Then I started shooting left, right. Then I just my gun again as fast as I could load it. And the whole time he's just kind of looking at me like I'm going to come and kill your ass. Yeah. And he never picked his gun up. He finally turned and just started walking straight away. And I shot at him four or five more times and still couldn't hit him. I found out my gun was shooting about 50 yards. It was shooting about three foot high and way off to the left. Anyhow. Wow. So. Wow. The armor had screwed with my gun. I don't know how he got that scope that far off. <laughs> That's way off. You know, that, you know and it's what's funny. You, you, you think about, you know, people saying, did it bother you, you know, killing all those people? No, they were the enemy. They were killing us. Yeah. But the thing that bothered me worse than anything, and I still have nightmares about it, is seeing the look on that guy's face when I was shooting at him. Yeah. He could have killed me. Yeah. And he never even picked up his gun. No, he just turned and started walking away. Wow. But there's also company right behind me, you know, like if yeah. I think he figured that out. Because he looked at me like you son of a bitch, I'm gonna kill. Yeah. Yeah. I went, oh shit. Probably thinking this guy can't hit the side of a barn, man. I got nothing to worry about. Yeah. He's like, shit is son of a bitch. Ain't gonna hurt me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you had an opportunity to get back at that armor. Yeah, I did. <laughs> That's yeah, funny. But down there, and you, we had to turn a rifle into the armor when we come in for the three days. I got to where I hardly ever came in. But anyhow, while I was there, I got to looking in the back, and shit, there was cases of beer mm-hmm. back there. Mm-hmm. And they would send beer over, but when you got beer, you got like one beer or something, you know. You didn't get a case. No. So I seen the cases of beer in the back. I went and I told my squad leader, Mark Olympic guy says, Somebody's got a shitload of beer in the back. Mark says, well, how, how are we going to get it? And I said, I don't know. We'll have to figure something out. That night we got hit. And, of course, everybody runs to the bunkers and all that shit. I says, Mark, now's our time. 
<laughs> jumped on one of those little, you know, scooter things. It's jumped on that, run down there and while they were in their bunkers and shit. We opened the back of his tent, loaded up all his beer, <laughs> took off and shot back to our tent. Boy, we had a party that night. <laughs> and everybody got smoked. That's so great. They get back to armor anyhow. <laughs> Did he ever say anything after that, the armor? Nope. He never said nothing. <laughs> I, I, think, I don't think he knew who, I know he didn't know who got his beer, but yeah. I kind of think he had a feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so funny. Me and Mark jumped on that pack deal and run down there and ripped open back that tent and just loaded her up. Of course, everybody's in bunkers and shit and fire over pack me back up and run back to our tent. Yeah. Oh, we all got drunk that night. <laughs> yeah, boy. Uh, you joined the combined action platoon. What was the combined action platoon? What they do is they go into a, a village that the people are having trouble with, you know, growing stuff or, you know, getting their rice yeah, and irrigation and different things. And so I got to go out with them one time and and uh, work with the people and, you know, the civilians. Yeah. And, uh, but it, they were different to work with because they weren't really set up like. The grunts I worked with, you know, like yeah, like combat, yeah, yeah, that was, yeah. What was your impression of the civilians there? The people just like working in the fields. They were great, you know. The people were good, and uh, they knew we were trying to help them, but still, they were still afraid of us. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm sure something that happened, but I got to know some. Found this little boy. He's probably about twelve or so. He was just a great kid, but he helped a lot. Mm-hmm. As far as VC, mm-hmm. you can't just look at a person and say, well, that's not a farmer, that's big Kong. Yeah. He'd tell me, yeah, uh, uh, VC. He'd point at this guy and go, oh, really? Wow. VC. Yeah. Of course, if the guy didn't have a gun, I can't shoot him, you know, about <laughs> it. Right. And I knew who to watch, you know, and that bit to keep an eye on. Yeah. And uh, it did give me several kills. Yeah. So when you go into these villages, you just you couldn't tell a VC from just a regular villager. Yeah. And most of the time, because the VC, well, there's older guys, of course, but a lot of them, you know, that were younger men, they're in the service, you know, yeah. in South Vietnamese service, and they're not out running around. So you see a younger guy in a village, something's wrong. Yeah, yeah. Normally, we didn't get to shoot them. We would just catch them. Yeah. And then interrogated, and then they'd fly them up into the Nang. But. Yeah. So it was a lot of kids, women, and older older people in the villages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But on that little boy, he was in the Arizona Territory, and that kid helped me so much. He would tell me mm-hmm. it was VC, tell me what was going on. Yeah. He was, he was, he was just great. Yeah. I, I actually knew him for the... 13 months there, I was there. Well, eight months of it. And then on my extension, when I come back, mm-hmm. I'm right back up with that kid again. Wow. I always wished that I could have got him to the United States, you know, got him out of that mess. But yeah. You remember his name? Fawn is what Fawn. his name was. Yeah. And he spoke no English, just a few words. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The tiny bit. But yeah. I worked with him on it. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. God, by the time 
by the time I left, it, it, it say quite a bit of English words and stuff. Huh. After 13 months, you go home. Right. And um, you talked about in the book about you walking through Oakland Airport and people there giving you a hard time. Uh, you know, I, I didn't understand it that there were so many people against the Vietnam chick going on. Yeah. And when I got off, people were hollering as baby killers and all this shit, you know. Like, oh, wait a minute. I mean, never, I never felt more stupid, you know. Yeah. Around these people that you're over fighting for, you know, their rights. To, yeah. And, uh, they're calling you all kinds of names and everything. Uh, don't much care for this, you know. Yeah, yeah, of course. It must have been really confusing. It was. Yeah. Really was. Yeah, yeah. And then you got home and, and you found that you were different from, from the kids back home, too, right? Everything changed. Yeah, yeah. I guess I grew up more or something because. Of course. I remember going up to the big picnic area we had out there once in a while they have you know little beer blasts and things you know mm-hmm. i remember going out there and i couldn't take it i finally had to leave i, I couldn't stand to be around them you know just yeah interesting i was a baby killer and lazo couldn't hardly be around it yeah and i was going back you know i was just home for 30 days yeah because i did a 13 month tour and I did a six month extension. Mm-hmm. Night as a sniper, I extended to be a sniper again another six months, and they wouldn't let me. Yeah. When I got there, they said, "No, that's it. You, you all you talk about is killing the bastards." And said, "You got to get over this shit." And so they put me as a security in Da Nang. Yeah. Gate security and all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, what a boring ass job. <laughs> <laughs> Because you'd been out. Yeah. So my second extension was shit. Yeah. But by the time you reached your uh, second extension, you'd already had 103 confirmed kills. Is that, right. is that correct? I had 101. Uh-huh. For Olympic, my squad leader, he kept all my kill sheets. Mm-hmm. The, what was his name? Pete Sanich, who was doing the book. I told him I had 101. And, oh, yeah, Joe Ward's book, too, said I had 101. Mm-hmm. And Mark, Mark Olympic said, no, I've got his kill sheets. He had 103. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, I got that all straightened out. Mm-hmm. I didn't really care about the numbers, none of that shit. Yeah, they're the ones who were keeping uh, keeping tabs, right? Mm-hmm. And you you still have the record for a Marine sniper, correct? Yes, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Let's talk about when you got your E4 stripes, because you're kind of waiting for them. And well, that was kind of crazy because everybody else got it. Yeah, and they wasn't doing shit. You know, I mean, yeah, some of them had one kill or something. Yeah, like what the hell's going on? Well, was it like five six months later? They called me. I had to go into uh, Liberty Bridge. It's just that small combat. Uh, artillery base had to go into that and didn't know what the hell was going on well they had two three-star generals flew out to give me a meritorious combat promotion to wow lance third to corporal <laughs> yeah and that's why i didn't get it ah for all these they were 
rigging this thing up. <laughs> right, to get make it a special presentation for you. Was bullshit. <laughs> I didn't hear about that. <laughs> but when guys that I, I went through school with and everything else are corporals and telling me what to do. Yeah. Just pissed me off. <laughs> <laughs> They ain't done shit. Yeah, yeah. It's like, where's mine? Where are my stripes, man? Mm-hmm. That's funny. And then you got, you have to requalify uh, at a certain point, and you run into this Sergeant uh, Whitby, right? He's he's requalifying you and giving you a hard time. I don't know what it was about. Why why he had a a thing on it uh, about me? Yeah, and I had you know large number of kills and i think that was bugging him too i don't know but yeah yeah he'd give me a lot of shit shooting and everything and yeah so finally i shot the highest score anybody ever shot in the thousand yards and he decided to be nicer to me mm-hmm. <laughs> and then john Lam- uh, jim lamb shows up he's the father of the whole marine sniper program mm-hmm. yeah and, and, and comes over to congratulate you uh, and that was pretty neat. Yeah. He's a good guy. Uh-huh. In fact, we went into his bunker. Well, the bunker he was staying at. And that was up at Liberty Bridge. And uh, anyhow, he had a bar. <laughs> oh, in his penis. Seriously, yeah. <laughs> in his. <laughs> we went and drank beer and had a great time. Uh-huh. <laughs> didn't talk much about that though. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so after you re-up the, for the third time you were done right i was gonna go back to my platoon as a sniper mm-hmm. they wouldn't let me go mm-hmm. I said that i had uh combat fatigue uh-huh and I, I i i wasn't allowed to go back out in the field uh-huh it's bullshit you know that's what i intended for they wouldn't let would not let me go so they made me sergeant of the guard for Benang for the, you know, MPs and all that shit. Mm-hmm. What a yucky job. Months later, he drove out of Camp Pendleton in his hot rod GTO Pontiac and drove nonstop to Lakeview, Oregon. In combat, he'd never known from day to day which bullet or landmine might kill him. Back home, there was no one who could understand what he'd been through, not even his family. So he kept to himself, and he started having nightmares. He'd been raised to believe in the Ten Commandments, and especially the one that said, Thou shalt not kill. Then as a teenage Marine, he'd been licensed to kill, and had spent 19 months killing other human beings who were trying to destroy his friends. And then you come back. You've done your service. You leave the military. You come back to Oregon, and what was that transition like? It was different, of course. You know, I've been yeah in combat so long. It was like at night. I remember going to a, a party with a bunch of bunch of friends, and uh, we was in at the campground way out in the bushes, and it got dark, and they're just partying, and I I'm watching outside. I'm watching the you know perimeter. Yes, uh, it was hard to adjust. You know that yeah. Hey, nothing's going to shoot you out here. Yeah. A little bit hard to get used to after being there so long, you know? Sure. Would you say you had PTSD? Was it a long adjustment? Would you still have, you know, lots of memories of, of what you went through? 
it's probably mild, but yeah, I just didn't feel like I fit in. You know what I mean? It was it was hard to like these. Well, everybody had changed, right? Yeah. And you, you had changed too. You know, I've been in combat so long. All of a sudden, now you're just not doing nothing. You know what I mean? Right. And the whole country, it seemed like in those years, had changed. Oh boy, so much, so much. Yeah, with the drugs and the hippie culture yep. and everything, and it was yep. all it changed really hard for me to accept. You know, just yeah, yeah. I think it was hard for everybody. Sure. Yeah, and then you joined the Forest Service, and that, and you had a, a a good career there. Yes. Yeah. I started running equipment, running road graders and cats and stuff. Mm-hmm. I did that for years, and then finally I ended up being in charge of it. You know. Yeah. That was pretty easy life. Yeah. And then the Vietnam stuff came back around again because they started having reunions and they started, mm-hmm. you know, remembering your, your, your achievements. And uh, they even recreated the rifle that you used. Yeah. Well, yeah. They found they, because of Pete Sinich, and he did have, um, probably from Mark, they had the serial number off of, of his rifle mm-hmm. the the marine corps just recirculated rifles i guess you could say yeah. mm-hmm. so his his there had been something said about it and anyway somebody one day actually looked at the rifle that they were assigned but it wasn't you know it wasn't set up the same way it was when it was in vietnam this is mm-hmm. much later and this guy realized that and he reported it. He goes, "Hey, I have that serial number." Well, I had the serial number, and oh, and so he looked at his gun and had the same serial number as my gun that I carried in Vietnam. So no kidding. Yeah. Wow. Well, it got taken back to its original form. Yeah. Put in a museum, and we we had fun. Uh, Mark Wimpy. He uh, set up that we start having some reunions. You know, we all get together, and that was a lot of fun. And see how people change. And yeah, yeah. Everybody's kind of like animals over there, and then see people <laughs> being people again. You know, it's kind of kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. See them in in in, in civilian life. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's quite a story. What an amazing story uh, you have. You know, it was. I wasn't gonna. I didn't want to do it, and finally, Robin and Jim kind of talked me into it. But I, I said, I, I want the truth. I don't want bullshit. I said, I, I've read some of these, and I said, I just want the truth told. And I said, we'll get with Mark Limpic, and he's got records and everything, and we'll make sure we got everything correct before it's it comes out. And I was pretty happy with the book because it was true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's very good. It's great. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Jim's a good writer because he made it. Mm-hmm. He made it really interesting the way he wrote the, the on his stuff. So he did a great job, I thought, on it. Absolutely. And how did you meet Jim? Uh, after I get off work, when I was working in town here, I'd uh, stop by this little bar called Idle Hour and have a couple of cold beers before I come home. And uh, Jim and did the same thing, so that's how I met Jim. Okay. Uh, talking about and then i remember one time he asked me suppose you ever in the service and i said yeah i was, I was in the marine corps 
you ever go to Vietnam? And I said, yeah, I went to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. What'd you do there? I said, I was a sniper. And then he got all interested in it. And, uh, and he left in his years. I hadn't seen him. And then he came back. And then he got got hold of me, got to talking about it. He said, uh, well, I'd kind of like to write a book. I said, nah, we don't write a book, you know, and talk about killing people. Yeah. I think we can make a good book. Yeah. I thought he did a real nice job on the book. Yeah, I think so too. When it's all said and done, when you've been through all this experience, uh, what what is your takeaway from everything? Glad it's over. (laughs) 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 My takeaway is it's all Vietnam is Vietnam. Life is life and it's a little bit hard at first to get it out of my head, you know. Yeah. At night, it was hard. Who's who's watching the house, you know, tonight? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Hard to get comfortable. Yeah, yeah. But that didn't take long. They had finally come around and I got back to normal again. In 1997, at the age of 48, having worked for the federal government for 30 years, including his time in the Marine Corps, Chuck retired. Two years later, he got a phone call from Tony Perry, a writer for the Los Angeles Times, requesting an interview. Perry's article, A Sniper at Peace with His Duties, appeared in March 2000, and right away it started gathering national and international attention. In it, Chuck, who tends to look on the bright side of things and can make fun of any situation, explained that being a sniper was a lot more than killing people. It was also being the eyes and ears for company missions and went back at base cleaning his rifle and burning shitters. Beginning in 2010, Chuck's wife Robin has helped organize a series of sniper reunions across the country. In 2012, she organized an all-family reunion in Pensacola, Florida, not far from the airbase where the Marine pilots train. On returning to the condo where they were staying, the snipers' cars were met by a large gang of bikers who lined both sides of the road. Chuck wondered what the hell was going on. The snipers and their families slowed their cars, and the bikers raised American flags like sabers as the old warriors motored through. We thank Chuck Mahoney for sharing his story and for his brave service to our country. It's my great honor to name him today's Hero Behind the Headlines. Heroes Behind Headlines. Executive producer, Ralph Pizzullo. Produced and engineered by Mike Dawson. Orchestra and score provided by Extreme Music. Please comment, share, and subscribe to Heroes Behind Headlines.